the lecture content for this week is a single lecture. Um, and we're kind of going in a, a reverse chronological order um, and talking about uh, features of late stage capitalism uh, before, uh, with respect to identity, before getting to the actual fundamentals of <coughs> with respect to identity. So, talked a bit about um, economists discovering that simulations were um, uh, economies, that uh, uh, EverQuest was the 77th largest economy in the world uh, as a computer game by 1998, and uh, uh, other sort of distressing and uncanny aspects of the story. <laughs> So, um, uh, yeah, so I talked a bit about the, um, the main thrust of last, uh, of last class was just the extension of the market into the immaterial, into uh, uh, desire and the like, and how this then uh, is reflected in the creation of what we might term selves of desire, self desi selves uh, based on what people want uh, and aspire to. So um, this time I'm just going to talk about, um, uh, I'm going to go at things from a much longer uh, perspective, a uh, longer historic perspective. So uh, uh, when we were doing our identity uh, reading group in this uh, organization last year, uh, one of the most helpful interventions by one of our participants was um, uh, to talk about the difference between um, structural oppression and bigotry. That um, there are lots of forms of discrimination that exist in the world. And we often suggest that these are simply the same thing. Uh, and there's actually a bit of a funny story about that. Um, so, you know, I've been involved in uh, putting together this uh, small political party here, the Eco-Socialists, and um, uh, one of my uh, compatriots put together a, um, a sort of inventory of these forms of bigotry or discrimination and said, you know, we are anti-racist, um, anti sexist, uh, anti-capitalist, um, anti-homophobic, anti-transphobic, um, and I think there were a couple of others, I don't remember the very long sentence. And we received a note when this went live to our website about a day later, and it just said, I can't believe you, you ableist pieces of shit. Uh, and um, I, I think that, that certainly uh, speaks to our moment in some ways, that we've gone from a politics of um, where we define exclusion and discrimination in terms of actual exclusion to a politics of exclusion and discrimination that um, uh, where people now feel discriminated against 
if their particular victim identity is not specifically referenced in dealings with them. Um, and uh, I think there's some problems, obviously, with that discourse. Um, I think, uh, you know, the goal in many, you know, anti-racist movements of the past was to have your group not mentioned, not to have your group mentioned. Uh, and uh, so, you know, so there's some things that this says about questions of universality that we'll get to later in the course. But um, at this sort of early stage, um, what's relevant here is that not all forms of discrimination um, reflect um, powerful structures of systemic oppression. And the example that our friend Darcy used was to say, I want you to imagine, um, have you ever seen a, um, uh, a factory where everybody working there had to be bald? We've seen factories where everybody's black. We've seen factories where everybody's children. Are there any factories of all bald people? Are there any uh, chain gangs of all gay people? Um, and that one of the things that we distinguish in coming in this analysis of I, one of the problems we face with identitarianism is that instances of discrimination or bigotry where you're disliked because you're a Muslim or a Christian or whether it be your, it's because you're bald or you're gay, um, these instances of discrimination and bigotry are real and they're oppressive but they're not structurally oppressive in the way that um, I would say our big three forms of discrimination are. Uh, but generally, when we look at labor systems, when we look at prisons and workplaces, um, we see big structures of oppression that, um, that have a clear economic component where a group of people's labor is mobilized and controlled in a particular way because it's part of uh, not merely a society's tastes or beliefs, but of the economic order of the civilization. And um, yeah, and uh, so, and we will get to some of these issues that are being raised in chat. Let me just, um, get to the uh, uh, get get through the basics here now one of the things that uh, would surprise many uh, people who uh, identify as um, intersectionalists um, is that uh, if we look at a Marxist standpoint uh, class oppression is not the most important or original form of structural oppression, right? It's gender-based oppression that Friedrich Engels sees as the root of oppressive labor systems. Uh, that only with the development of gender as a conceptual category and as a labor category could we then build um, class as a concept. And it's only with the elaboration of class that we can have race as a structural oppressive force. 
And so, um, uh, can you elaborate more on this? The the origins of the family private property in the state is that there the we go. The origins of the family private property in the state, the Friedrich Engels classic, and uh, so this. Um, uh, so Engels' argument is that um, that patriarchy, um, the um, uh, that men's interest in controlling um, their genetic or heritable material um, produces the um, the structures necessary to uh, control women's labor and. From there, we move to male-female being the original class system, uh, out from which we can then build um, our modern understandings of class. So one of the stranger accusations that's hurled at um, uh, Marxists is that they're class reductionists who don't understand the importance of gender. Uh, but that's nevertheless a common accusation that's hurled at Marxists. Um, <clears throat> so, um, uh, so we tend to, so anyway, so those are our big three, but these big three emerge in a particular and necessary order. You couldn't build race without class. Um, you couldn't build class without gender. And so there is this historical process of developing these kinds of difference. And these kinds of difference are rooted in structures of production. Now, I, so I first want to begin by talking about um, some interesting forces that come out of um, gender when it when it comes to thinking about production in um, the uh, in the recent past so I talked a lot last class about how a lot of the trick or the sleight of hand of late stage capitalism is the monetization of already existing things and then the reporting of that as the growth of the economy so you take subsistence farming you turn it into a series of exchanges and the economy has suddenly grown, even if the per person caloric intake has fallen and everybody's eating less food uh, or less food is being produced. The fact that you've been able to monetize and commodify all of the food produces this illusion of growth. And so capitalism continues to expand even when the physical world does not. Um, now, so a lot of the forces that are unleashed in late stage capitalism involve um, the um, an attempt to recognize um, the mere re redefinition of thing as a change in structures of productivity and that there's this over reporting in which we engage of the size of the economy. Now this is not how gender has worked in the modern era. Gender and gender-based discrimination, gender-based oppression, it works very much the opposite way. That what um, that the way gender produces efficiencies in capitalism is by concealing labor costs, by uh, making uh, the labor of women disappear 
from the formal economy and appear only in the informal economy. And this has been a structuring force uh, really um, that has accelerated since industrialization. So prior to industrialization, women's labor was actually more visible in manufacturing. So manufacturing prior to the fossil fuel revolution um, took place in non-public space. It took place in private space primarily, right? So um, your production of raw materials took place on farms. Your production of um, manufactured goods took place in, um, in hybrid spaces where both manufacturing took place and people resided. So look at uh, something like shoe manufacturing in the early modern period. Um, the way that would be structured is a, um, a guild master would um, own a large, well, would own a set of buildings. Um, he and his wife would run that set of buildings. And in those buildings, you would house apprentices, you would um, uh, store materials, you would store tools. Um, so there you'd, and you'd have the family of the guild master as well. Uh, in those environments, um, women were understood as the co-managers of those spaces. Uh, it was their job to feed the apprentices, for instance, a clear, something that, that uh, uh, something quite different, that um, the material needs of the apprentices might be looked after uh, primarily by women. And of course, there would be a family that was being raised in that environment that was also being taken into this productive system. And the family's children were, of course, learning the trade uh, while involved in these tasks. And um, so manufacturing did not take place in public space. These were not public buildings, these were domestic spaces. And our traditional understanding of um, the way most societies have policed the role of men versus women has been to say that public space is men's space and domestic space is women's space. And so in this way, you see a fairly prominent role for women in manufacturing and a recognized role, even if that role was technically private. Uh, as we move away from this, through both industrialization and through uh, changes in farming, um, that comes to be viewed as non-respectable. Um, you should be protecting your women and your children from work. You should be protecting them from apprentices. If you're really a prosperous man, why does your wife need to be working with tools? Why does she need to be feeding your workers? Um, and, uh, and so to show themselves to be respectable people, 
even before the effects of coal and oil and mass production hit, um, men seeking respectability increasingly separated their productive and domestic spaces and pushed women out of productive space. Uh, and that's, that's a process we've been in for about 400 years in the West, longer or shorter times in other parts of the world. Samina. So this comes out of the Victorian discourse because uh, exactly, it, it yeah. precedes Victorian discourse. The Victorians are a more extreme version. Uh, this really comes with the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. um, and it comes with um, the cultivation of sensitivity. So, uh, right, the, the, the fairy tale of the Enlightenment is the princess and the pea, that, uh, uh, that the young woman is revealed as the princess because of her inability, to, uh, or because of her extraordinary ability to experience minor, minor physical suffering. Uh, and that, that sensitivity is very important. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's a laughable idea, but let's remember what preceded it. What preceded it was um, people uh, sitting in bleachers, eating street food and cheering while um, they watched people being burned to death or tortured. Um, so the Enlightenment's interest in cultivating sensitivity as problematic as it is, is in many ways the same force that liberated slaves and ended public torture. So um, it's um, it's really it's really strange how how much flips in the human brain as to whether you find torture funny or not. Uh, how whether you have that particular experience of empathy and. Uh, there are all kinds of highly civilized moments in human history where the people we would like best would still invite us out to an auto de fe to watch somebody burn to death on Sunday. Uh, so um, we um, so 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 women are being pushed out of recognized work then from really from the Baroque era onwards. Um, but at the same time, um, and at the same, and at a similar rate, children are also being taken out of the labor force. But what this does is it takes the work that women do and by separating it from recognized sites of production, render it invisible. So childcare becomes a category of enterprise now that it's inappropriate for your child to be working starting at the age of six as, you, as one of your apprentices. Um, childcare emerges. Um, women are still feeding all kinds of people, uh, but because these people are, um, are not, uh, are not workers in the same sense, or their relationship is that they're not the woman's worker, but rather the woman's family member, that work also disappears. So a lot of, um, a lot of, um, so in some ways, certainly not all, but in some ways, women's work has been progressively less recognized, less compensated, 
and more thoroughly denigrated as we have become more modern. Uh, and, um, but what this does is it creates big invisible subsidies. And that's what happens if you're at the upper end of society. If you're at the lower end of society and you are seeking to become respectable enough to keep your women and your children at home, you don't necessarily hit that note as a man. Um, mo you know, so what one then has to do is if one's female associates are involved in the making of something in the formal economy, that has to be effaced. So you're taking in laundry, you're taking in other people's clothes to be mended, you're making street food, things like that. All of that is shameful and it's effaced. And one of the things that is so effective about capitalism is its ability to depress the value of labor that is culturally stigmatized. So, um, so laundry you're ashamed to be taking in is going to be laundry that you're probably doing for less money than if you were proud to be taking in the laundry. Um, because people who are giving you their laundry know that um, them being quiet about it matters to you and that that's going to discount the value of the service you're giving them. Um, and then, of course, you have um, uh, female-headed families, which have always been common, especially in more bellicose eras when the purpose of the patriarchy was to kill off most young men before they could become patriarchs. Uh, the, um, uh, so in female-headed families, Again, this produced depression in labor values. Uh, women and being a public woman uh, in most societies um, meant that uh, you were a desperate woman, and uh, that um, uh, and that image of desperation and of low social standing. Um, led to increasing sexual violence against women who were in public space and into um, the redefinition of their work as sex work. So um, selling fruit at a market from a basket, you're a sex worker in uh, most societies in the 18th and 19th centuries. And um, again, that effective use of stigma debases the labor. It, uh, and it prevents that labor from organizing collectively. Uh, uh, there have been lots of studies of market women in Latin America because it's a phenomenon that started earlier there and lasted longer. And looking at um, that this is a disorganized part of the labor force, typically except in instances of extreme stress in a society, and that it's a highly conservative part of the labor force that will side with the authorities whenever possible, uh, because people there are so precarious that they're, um, uh, you know, likely to die uh, by men's violence because they're sex workers and people won't care even if all they're doing is selling mangoes. Uh, so we see that um, 
Uh, now, one of, now, there's been a lot of talk about uh, this phenomenon since COVID, and I'm watching it unfold in the organizing that I've been doing. So, um, I, uh, one of the things that we, almost all of us have been seeing is that um, women who have been, um, have not been, uh, or who have been the primary breadwinner in a household um, in white collar work, if they're in a white collar job that is high enough status, they've been sent home to do their work from home. And what has happened is the things that they have worked out in their households have broken down. Uh, I know this with so many of my friends and associates where um, they started out as a secondary parent, um, you know, that they're, the other people in their home, however that was configured, you know, uh, um, a mother, a mother-in-law, a husband, uh, a partner, whatever it was, that simply by virtue of being a mother at home, the social expectations that capitalism has given us have caused them to take on more of the cooking, more of the cleaning, more of the invisible, unremunerated work every week. Uh, profoundly destabilizing uh, both the material elements of their relationships and the emotional elements of those relationships. That only through the ritual of commuting, of exiting the domestic space for a certain number of hours a day, were these women able to shield themselves from becoming the primary caregiver to the elder, the primary caregiver to the child, the primary provider of food, the primary provider of groceries, all that stuff, are the power of our expectations, once all that's holding that back are social factors, um, our expectations overwhelm whatever set of roles these households have developed prior to sending women home to work from home. And so it's been very noticeable in the university sector. Um, partnered women's research um, has halted with COVID and um, partnered men's research has not. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that, that's what we're seeing. Um, in fact, partnered men's research is often moving faster now um, because of the ability to hold women in these domestic spaces. So, uh, Tithi Bhattacharya has, is probably the main living theorist of what we call social reproduction theory. And that work of, um, that work of social reproduction is, um, uh, uh, it, this is the term for the non-monetized part of women's labor that is extracted through cultural expectations. Um, and Jonathan, yeah, just on that front, um, there has been some quantitative work at universities about research productivity. So there's, um, some of it's my personal experience, but uh, some social science researchers were pretty fast into the field. Uh, to start looking at that. Um, so 
So it's interesting that while so many forces in late stage capitalism uh, are moving to quantify and monetize um, things that aren't even labor and convert them into capital, um, social reproductive work or women's work, um, we go the opposite direction. And by stigmatizing, devaluing, undervaluing, rendering invisible, um, we're able to say things like, well, we can't afford a national childcare program. Uh, even though if one were to quantify the amount of childcare work that's being done and do some basic comparisons of cost, it's very clear that we're spending more on childcare now. We're just not using cash to do it. Uh, so that's, um, uh, so it's, um, so with the emergence of gender, the key thing about gender is that it hierarchizes types of labor and then assigns um, low value and high value work with different identity groups. Now, it's important to recognize that this is, um, I'll, I'll give a moment to rebutting the men's rights movement uh, and their thing. Um, let me be clear, people said value, not risk. Um, Let's remember, we don't put slaves down mines either. Uh, you, um, you don't put, uh, so if you're trying to extract work from a person over the course of their lifetime, you put them in the lower, the lower risk, lower status work is often lower risk work uh, because you're engaged in the long-term extraction of labor right, that in many societies, there's no time a grandmother stops working, right? <laughs> Grandfathers, you know, play backgammon and drink at the Legion. Grandmothers are still childcare providers. Uh, they're still cooks, they're still these things, because you're trying to stretch that labor extraction out over a whole lifetime. So one of the paradoxes is that men's work is both higher value work and higher risk work. Uh, uh, and that's why it's important, that's why this discourse of privilege is really problematic. The idea that men benefit from capitalism and women are hurt by capitalism is a misunderstanding. Everybody is being screwed by capitalism. Um, we're just being screwed in different ways because it's a complex system. Um, I mean, I don't think that saying that men were loggers and whalers and miners is exactly an articulation of male privilege. It's simply an articulation of the idea that men's work is higher risk, higher value work. Uh, and um, so, with that established, that's sort of Engels' initial, I mean, that, that's, that's a lot of the, the essence of Marx and Engels on gender. So when we move to more complex societies with fully elaborated class systems, they're similar in that they hierarchize types of labor um, and they create dominated classes that do lower value labor. Um, 
And often, uh, as we notice with women's labor, um, less prestigious labor is often the more necessary labor. Um, so uh, civilization shuts down entirely if uh, you don't feed and look after babies, but that's not prestigious labor. It's, um, it's labor that, uh, even though it's the more necessary form of labor, and that pattern continues as social complexity elaborates. Uh, Samina? Yeah, I'm just uh, thinking about uh, that in India, 90% of uh, labor economy is informal labor economy, right? And uh, it has a complete set of hierarchy, right? Where the women and the uh, lower caste and lower class people are working on the factory floors and they are all from minorities or indigenous, you know, uh, various kinds of uh, ethnicities and classes. Uh, so I'm just wondering, uh, these women who are working on the factory floors in the informal sector economy in India, they are at the higher risk uh, and they, their work is also at the lower value. Um, oh yeah, no, I think that that's a fair observation. I'm a little, um, I mean, these are, these are general patterns of labor, right? Mm -hmm. They're non-universal patterns. Um, it, uh, it is true though, based on my, you know, my limited understanding of the Indian economy that, um, um, steel is a male dominated field, textiles, female dominated, um, yes. steel is less necessary, higher risk, higher paying. Um, and it's in those general patterns because the important thing where class-based systems are more sophisticated than gender-based systems is that they contain internal mobility, right? That it's not a simple coercive system, that people rise and fall with respect to their class and lineage groups together can rise and fall with respect to their class through being strategic, through having agency, and if people couldn't rise or fall individually, these systems would contain far more worker solidarity. Because uh, one of the other things you're, you're having to mitigate against with the rise of capitalism is if you create an impregnable system of oppression, where through individual agency or a small alliance, you can't move within that system of status, then you have no incentives to keep that system in place. Uh, and investment in the system working is uh, crucially important. Um, no successful caste or class system um, survives without mobility structures. Uh, and it needs to formalize those structures so that people can aspire to them and see those as, as examples of an easier way out than an attack on the system itself. Uh, it, um, this is one of the reasons, um, yeah, when my, uh, I mean, this is something I belabor extensively when I teach uh, the Game of Thrones TV series, the misdesign of the system of slavery, uh, because it's, it's an inescapable one. 
like there's no reason any slave should be invested in George Martin's system of slavery. Whereas a highly successful system of slavery, um, you have people who've gotten out looking down their noses at families that are still in going, you know, well, my grandfather was a slave and he managed to buy his way out. You know why these people are still slaves? They lack initiative, they lack discipline. And so, um, uh, the way that gender-based oppression is held in place is very different than the ways in which caste and class oppression are held in place. Gender oppression is, is held in place because we love our families and because of the way humans fit together in parental and romantic relationships. Gender-based oppression relies on the inherent centripetal forces that come from us being mammals. Um, and that's not something you can rely on in these larger complex systems, which is why mobility is an absolutely essential characteristic, or rather, let me rephrase that. The discourse of mobility is an essential characteristic. Um, I think one of the, the greatest observations that um, uh, the Shakespearean corpus has is in the play Henry V, where um, uh, you um, where the central myth of you know fe of feudal medieval Europe was that um, uh, the uh, that you inherited your status, you inherited your property, and it was immovable. Uh, I would, um, I don't think we know if there's gender mobility yet, Jonathan, uh, but it's entirely possible that people who believe there's gender mobility would be upset, except why would they be angry that people were downwardly mobile? Uh, so, um, it, uh, um, so when we look at, um, uh, so there's this scene where, Henry V is making his great speech for the Battle of Agincourt, and it's revealed, right, that the people he's leading into battle are untitled rabble of uh, no uh, quality of blood, and that if they win at this battle, they're going to replace the traditional aristocrats of their homeland. And, that, and that's because you need this complex interplay between a discourse of mobility and a discourse of stability. That if you don't have both of those things in balance, um, you lose buy-in to a society. And so what mattered in the Middle Ages, which was highly unstable, uh, people entered and left the aristocracy so much more easily than in the early modern or modern periods, because the aristocracy was so permeable, people had to go to great rhetorical effort to suggest that it wasn't in order to give people a sense of order and stability. That if people could see how permeable and unstable the aristocracy was, they would realize it would be actually quite easy to pull it down. And so that's why in the United States, where we have an almost frozen class system that's very hard to escape, the national discourse is always about mobility. You're always telling people how mobile and how permeable and how flexible your class system is.
And so usually uh, it's actually a decent rule of thumb that unless you're English, um, the, um, you're going to be saying the opposite about your, uh, about your class system uh, compared to what's true. That, um, uh, you know, uh, people in um, the surviving European welfare states where there's high levels of class mobility spend a lot of time kvetching about the local aristocrats. Norwegians and Swedes and Danes hate their aristocrats and complain about them a lot, uh, even though they have small, under-control aristocracies and uh, the best class mobility on Earth. Uh, okay, so class systems come along. They're similar to the gender system, hierarchized types of labor, stigmatized kinds of labor. The more necessary labor tends to be the less prestigious and less valuable but there's this additional feature that individuals and lineages can move within the system. Um, uh, yeah, I would say that's also solid, Jonathan, that um, the ability to control who's in your identity group is pretty important, that if that destabilizes, it upsets people. Um, I mean, it's a little different if you're uh, a black American and, um, uh, where there's never been any sense of control of who's in the identity group and the slightest exertion of control produces continent-wide mayhem. Um, you know, the fact that that one woman in Spokane uh, sat on an NAACP executive uh, produced what weeks and weeks of press coverage and scandal across the Atlantic world. Um, so I think in some cases one feels like one's in an identity group that is, um, that has a degree of self-definition. Um, but lots of different ways that's sliced it. Maybe building off of that point there about somebody moving into an, into an identity group where we might consider there to be downward mobility, is it possible that people are concerned about the prevalence or existence of, or awareness of downward mobility, lest somebody then realize, wait a minute, if there's downward mobility, is there upward mobility? Should there be upward mobility? And might those questions then be what follows from there being downward mobility? So might there be an interest in preventing even downward mobility almost as a, pre pre a preemptive step to not question upward mobility. Yeah, although generally you see efforts to prevent downward mobility as coming in from the group of the top of a hierarchy, not at the bottom. So I, I think we are, um, I, I, I question, uh, yeah, I, I think that normally if, if that were true, it would be, um, uh, it would be, um, if that were true, Neil Gorsuch would not have voted for trans rights yesterday. Um, I, uh, I, I think that, um, uh, I think that, that, I think there's something very else going on here. Um, I think that, uh, it's really remarkable that you have a situation where a Donald Trump Supreme Court appointee is saying, no, no, of course you can change your gender. Uh, and uh, um, uh, 
I, I think that, uh, that the ease with which that case was made is very interesting, that you've got like the Bush chair, the Supreme, head of the Supreme Court, and uh, Gorsuch um, on this side. Uh, so I think that um, I think that the problem with this part of the discussion is it's premised on the idea that transgender people are changing their gender. And I know we get that from the word, but I think we have to problematize whether that's actually the phenomenon we're witnessing. Uh, and I think we'll get there at a later point. So I think that as we try to theorize about the basic fundamentals of oppression and your, your class, race, gender, your big three, um, taking modern, very strange examples, um, I don't think we can use them very easily, especially because they're a phenomena we haven't seen play out. Uh, there are about, they're from phenomena we're making predictions about right now, but we haven't actually seen materially play out in a serious way. Um, I, uh, uh, so, uh, but just to, to move with the, the, the building the original edifice, building our three-legged stool, um, race comes along. And one of the things that race does beginning in the 14th century is it uh, it's such a powerful force because it insulates um, certain modes of production from the normal consequences of labor shortages. So it's invented in the West on these islands in the Mediterranean that are where there are terrible labor shortages. Making racial slavery depresses the cost of agricultural labor in a shocking and bizarre way and keeps it depressed. So the existence of racialized groups that have high levels uh, associated with highly stigmatized work means that your economy will run as though there is a decent amount of labor in it even when the labor supply periodically constricts and constricts badly. And the best examples of this, of course, come out of the longest term and most robust race system. Um, the, uh, that the wages, that the, that the amount of stigma um, and the wages uh, received by uh, uh, Dalit people largely un, is lar largely insensitive to the number of workers available because other workers won't do the unclean work, but at the same time, the um, the Dalits won't be given uh, clean work. So what this so by associating one particular group with a kind of work you're able to artificially stabilize the cost of labor around that work. Uh, that normally you'd expect bottom tier work to vanish in the event of a labor shortage. And race is crucial for preventing that from happening. Periodically, right, when you see, and this is a big strength of the American economy following the Great Migration, that 
you can keep paying racialized workers basically the same no matter how much the supply of white workers expands or contracts. This um, is a, uh, uh, so when we go back to the stories I was telling last episode about those streetcar suburbs, uh, those factories, right? So I, I said last time that ultimately solidarity won out. Uh, that um, your Swedes, your Germans, your uh, uh, your Italians did group up into these trade unions, but some. But the Achilles' heel was that so many of those trade unions were based not on a shared status as a worker, but a shared status as white, and so the response of the labor contracting firms is to go to the high unemployment black communities and to make deals with black churches uh, to bring their workers in, uh, in order to break strikes. And so um, black evangelicals become a crucial strike breaking force in the industrial United States, just as um, uh, just as non-white Hispanics become a crucial strike-breaking force in the Southwest. That, um, that, uh, that even when all the labor is tied up, you can still um, have this stability of supply and stability of wage. And when they're, and the only downside of that is, well, when the white people are willing to work cheap or when work, uh, or when work isn't that plentiful, the unemployment rate rises or falls in the non-white world. So black American communities can go, uh, uh, can fluctuate an unemployment rate from one to 30% with radical shifts in employment levels, but that insulates the rest of society from significant shifts in employment levels. This is a, a feature that used to be the biggest difference between the Canadian and US economy, was that the, your chances of being unemployed in Canada as a white person really rose and fell with the economic conditions because we're an extractive periphery mostly, we're, we're a very white country, and so you had white communities that had these crazy up and down unemployment rates, particularly in the Maritimes. But in the United States, the maintenance of large racialized groups of workers really insulated white America from this, except under the most extreme circumstances, like the collapse of the system in the 1930s. So what we, and there's the fact that class and class and caste are not identical. That there's, um, that one of the other reasons that America could work this way was that there was a black middle class to make a deal with. Um, that funeral home directors and reverends and doctors and lawyers who could not shed their blackness, their route to prosperity was to become controllers of black labor for white America. And uh, so 
Uh, and really the best mathematical work on this has all been done in India uh, to show that if you, that caste and class are separate, they have to stay separate. And the more you're able, they're separate but correlated. And that that separateness but attachment s produces a kind of powerful synergy in a capitalist economy. Uh, it, um, that these two things together are so much more powerful than either one by itself. Uh, this dynamic interaction. Um, my, uh, um, I think my, my favorite story, I think I, I've told it already in this course, is about the, uh, the Goan caste, the Paravas, the first ones to convert to Christianity. Um, that um, the, uh, the, the best example of, the, of these weird synergies that produce these moments of mobility that then produce stasis uh, are um, the Paravas, the, uh, the pearl divers. Uh, you dive into the ocean, it is unclean to open the oyster, but inside the oyster is a pearl that is worth more money than you could possibly make, except you, as an untouchable, can't sell the pearl directly to the people who will pay the money for it. Only the people who are, you know, in this gray area of the economy can buy the pearls off you and you're horribly ripped off. But even though you're just being cleaned out every time in terms of the relative value of a pearl versus what you're selling it for, pearl diving jathis build up these big nest eggs of money that they then use to bribe or physically threaten uh, Brahmins who will then change their caste. And so, you you know, you've got the big bag of gold. Well, of course these people aren't Dalits. Uh, they must be Vaishas, otherwise why would they have all this gold? They couldn't possibly have saved it any other way. And, uh, and then, that means somebody else needs to dive for pearls. And there's a bottomless pit of untouchable people who will take the job that in five generations will get their jati out of that status. And so you can see that this is both a source of incredible dynamism. You can see that the costs of production of pearls were massively depressed through this system over thousands of years, but it works. And, and you watching that, that's not a set of contradictions. That's the system working. And, um, I think it's, it's, so it's important to recognize that when we add race and when it allows us to concentrate greater stigma on certain jobs and certain bodies associated with those jobs, it makes capitalism more productive. And you'll notice that um, this is a, a source of dispute that we've, we've had in, uh, in our, our reading groups in the past is uh, um, you think people are anti-capitalist, but then they, they really have to dispute the idea that capitalism does this, that, uh, um, that it's so efficient, that, that, that racism actually makes things more efficient. And um, I think it shows the degree to which people have bought into the mythology of capitalism, that they think racism is a bug, not a feature. 
not a feature. It took us centuries to build into the system so it worked faster and better. So one of the, um, one of, I think, the, the significant um, questions we need to deal with in our time uh, that we've needed to deal with really since the age of Dickens is um, whether, um, I think an important question for us is most civilizations have understood the fundamental base unit of the society as some kind of patriarchal family unit. That since the advent of patriarchy, we've really mapped the movement of wealth, the movement of class, the movement of caste, the assignment of those things to patriarchal family units. And cap late stage capitalism is further atomizing those units. It's breaking them down. That is no longer the logical way to look at the base unit in society. It does seem like if there's one enlightenment capitalist dream we might achieve, it's the idea of the individual as the sovereign base unit of our society. But this raises an important question for us that's been coming up with increasing frequency in this century, which is, can we then reconsider age as a fourth category of structural oppression? That as generations become increasingly adversarial with one another, as generations become more detached from one another, and um, as their material interests increasingly diverge, um, how should we be handling age as this thing? Um, when we see in uh, so many societies that um, uh, grandparents are economically, politically, and in all these other ways adversarial with their grandchildren, not in the conventional sense of it being contained within a family, but in the sense of, of being reluctant to engage in generational wealth transfer, making generational wealth transfer more conditional. Profound concerns about identity are things that naturally well up in systems that uh, require honor. I think there's a strong honor identity uh, relationship that um, occurs again and again. I think when we talk about the reification of identity now, we're looking at the convergence of two phenomena. One is this sudden dramatic rise in honor politics out of nowhere. That's producing an upsurge in um, people's sense of the preciousness of their identity, the fixity of their identity and all that. But that combines with the forces I was talking about last class, which is the commodification of identity and the commodification of knowledge of identity. Uh, and I think that, um, and I, I think that it's those two forces that are producing this reification and they may have the same fundamental cause, but they don't have the same immediate cause. I think um, one, ari one arises out of this extension of the market into um, guessing what you'll do and what you'll like, 
whereas um, whereas I think the other has to do um, with this uh, rapid creation of a new economy of honor in our social interactions, which I think is coming at us from a few different uh, angles. Um, uh, yeah, Jonathan, I was gonna say, um, I think there are a few instances, uh, particularly in, um, uh, in Europe, where we can see um, sexual identities, sexual uh, orientation, um, fitting into labor systems. Um, and I think that, um, I think that uh, this really, um, we see it in venerable bureaucratic or, or proto-bureaucratic societies. Um, so the, uh, the creation of eunuch culture in China, which extends beyond those who are actually eunuchs and becomes the culture of the imperial bureaucracy. Um, and then we look at the parallel in the West of uh, the fifth century nationalization of the academies and their conversion into monasteries. Um, and that, so it is interesting. So we do see in labor, um, what I would say is uh, not in the, not exactly in the modern sense, but I do think that you, you can see um, a kind of managerial class of men who don't have a lot of use for women um, that arise not at the bottom of patriarchies, but in the middle of patriarchies. Uh, that these people are largely serving a, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's a, that, that's a fair point, although, um, the industrialization of the university in the 1840s, I think, produced some disjuncture there. The arrival of the Prussian model of the university that's lab-centric rather than um, tutorial-centric uh, finally did sort of um, uh, draw a line under that phenomenon. But yeah, I do think that um, when we're thinking about labor, um, we can see that, uh, and uh, I talk a little bit about that with the ecclesiastical courts, right? That they're, uh, that the idea of there being a gay, man a gay managerial class in a patriarchy isn't that weird. It's based on some fairly normal incentives. But um, I think the, um, I want to distinguish that from the Holocaust era um, uh, ways of uh, punishing and concentrating uh, gay and trans people. Um, I think that, um, I, I do wanna see those as an aberration. Al Alana, um, uh, who's our, our vice president, pointed something out to me that I had, had been sailing over my head for years. Uh, the Nazis were not big book burners. Um, book burning constitute is an accusation that um, we make frequently in our civilization, and we've been making for a long time against all kinds of groups we hate. And 
often just a little bit of book burning is enough uh, to get us pretty riled up because we really see the codex as this physical fetish object that pulled Europe through the Middle Ages, right? So we, those who've got this theory of Western civilization really see the codex as the physical artifact that saved us. And so we're very ready to see book burning as um, a constitutive attribute that for, of forces that oppose us. But there was one great Nazi book burning and it was of all medical research into transgender people uh, that they could round up in Germany. Um, fascism constituted a moment of, um, one of the ways to look at fascism is that um, it was the first modern gay panic and it took place on an enormous scale. Um, that um, men in the 1920s and 30s in depressed economies in Europe felt insecure about their own sexuality in new and unprecedented ways. And consequently, a lot of the momentum behind the authoritarian movements they created um, was, to, uh, was to address that insecurity. And so, in terms of public victimization of men who are transgressing gender boundaries at the time, there was a whole new theater that we associate with uh, Mussolini, Hitler, Franco, Metaxas, um, that hadn't been around before. And I'd, I, I'd put your chain gangs there before I'd feel comfortable putting them elsewhere that, um, uh, that um, we, uh, that this is part of a new kind of gay panic that comes out of late capitalism, this reaction against um, people feeling certain forms of traditional masculinity have been undermined and that they themselves have been contaminated with that undermining. Uh, other stuff. Yes, which is why so many Nazis were gay. Thank you for writing the punchline while I was telling the joke. Yes. <laughs> Just to maybe help me potentially clarify some ideas, because sometimes I think I can conflate some concepts around caste and class, and then sometimes race can come into that as well. I'm just wondering if you could maybe delineate them a little bit and maybe even share potentially like a defining feature or source of each and so, that, that might allow us then to also think about if that is that the, the same defining feature that must that must alter for somebody's mobility to happen in some of those spheres um uh, so uh first of all uh caste and race are effective synonyms um uh you might uh, might want to argue that race is um the is the descriptive element of the phenomenon and that caste is the prescriptive element of the phenomenon. That, uh, uh, that uh, yes, that, that, you're, that, that race is descriptive and that caste is where you store the systems and rules that keep it going. Um, so caste and race are terms I'm using interchangeably. 
Um, now, one of the problems there is, of course, there's cultural valence. So we associate caste with the Indian system and we associate race with the European system. But um, caste was the first word the Europeans used for their new system of race. That was the first terminological place the Portuguese went and, uh, and the Spanish. And then this repurposing of the term race from Spanish then overtook that. Um, I think that um, we tend to use caste more with respect to uh, India rather than uh, uh, the European world because our racial system is more strongly based on pseudoscience. Um, so we like languages that are descriptive rather than prescriptive. We don't want to think that race is something we get up every morning and make and run. Uh, whereas I think just by dint of the huge amount of time, um, Indian society has had to come to terms with the fact that this is something everybody gets up in the morning and does to each other every day. I think that our tendency to underuse the word caste and overuse the word race comes out of our commitment to the pseudoscience of race uh, that, comes, that was a justifying discourse we adopted only in the 19th century. Uh, when it seemed like race might collapse as a system. And we built this whole new set of pseudoscientific justifications. So the difference, and so... And, and, and caste is a sacred system. It's a divine system. Yes, it comes from... It's a, we could say that caste is rooted in ontological dualism, whereas race is uh, whereas this discourse our discourse of caste is one based in ontological monism the idea not that there's an authority from above that is filtering down onto the world and changing the world but that it's imminent in the world itself so um i think a lot of it has to do with who tells you what your caste is that's one of the fastest ways to get there because these systems break if you don't put someone in charge of them because there has to be someone in charge of reshuffling the deck all the time, of changing people's caste so that the system remains descriptive. Um, and in our systems, right, it's our national census. It's affirmative action programs. Um, so bureaucrats who work with the physical and social sciences decide what your caste is here. Whereas in India, Brahmins decide that and the people running the affirmative action programs take notice. So the decision is made in the village and the state responds. Here we've compressed that into just the state response in a way. Um, so there's, so we're all of course doing the work of racializing each other all the time in the street every day as we look at each other, size each other up, etc. But these systems do need authorities who solve the problem of, is this person indigenous? Um, is Joseph Boyd an indigenous? Well, what systems do we put into play to figure that out? 
Well, we do largely the same work a Brahmin would do. We call up Joseph Boyden's parents. We look at what they put on their census forms. We talk to people in his hometown, and we decide that he was faking being indigenous. Um, but that process of discovery goes into effect all the time. And it's typically done by bureaucrats of governmental or non-governmental organizations. Look at, I mean, Rachel Dolezal is a striking case because no public money went missing. Um, but we nevertheless engaged in an investigative process to determine what Rachel Dolezal's race really is. Um, and uh, yes, but he was a much better known bullshitter than Boyden. Boyden had really taken the game up. People in town knew that guy was a bullshitter. So the, uh, and that was the information they acquired. So, the, um, so with Rachel Dolezal though, this is really quite amazing. Like how did we scientifically determine her race? Um, well, the news media had to get involved. We had to hear all kinds of people's testimony sort of presented to us in a quasi-judicial fashion before people could then start pronouncing authoritatively on it. So, um, so I, I guess what I, what I wanna stress here is um, there are subtle differences in the mechanism we use to run the two systems. And there are pluses and minuses to them. We've been able to go from it being a uh, junk physical science to a social science and save our system that way. Um, the idea that uh, the fact that there's a two-step process in India, um, you know, uh, creates a more robust system. But race and caste are essentially the same, and we have to remember what they're for. What they're for is labor, right? The prison industrial complex in the United States, the separate unemployment rate for black men, the racial composition of things like poultry plants in the United States, the racial composition of the people in beet fields in Arizona, um, so the way we can keep track of, of race or caste is ask, is it doing its job? Is it uh, creating that labor force? Yeah, I mean, in, in race, you still have a mobility, right? Yes. Uh, it, caste is a completely frozen system. Endogamy is a central feature of caste system. Well, except that people do change their caste and appear statistically to be more likely to, you're more, you have a better shot at escaping your caste than you do your race. There's a better procedure. You move to a large city, you come up with a lie about what village you're from, and many people do Sanskritize. We have a lot of stats that come out of, um, uh, different governmental authorities in India talking about how many people are passing as a higher caste than the one they were born in and turning yeah. down affirmative action programs in order to do that. Yeah, but, but Sanskritization still uh, doesn't matter when you are about to get married. So what I'm trying to say is endogamy is something which, which is, yeah, it, it's super central. And then your 
uh, mandali, uh, which is like a birth certificate, is made by the Brahmin when you're born. So it contains all the coded data about your caste. Oh, yes, I'm, which I'm is aware then appropriated of by the state. Yeah. I'm aware of this, but we do have stats on the relative effectiveness of policing these systems. And um, both systems claim to be totalizing and that mobility is impossible. Um, both systems are insistent that nobody is fooling them. Um, but we do, there are, there's enough sociological research to indicate that, um, uh, that these systems are both foolable. Um, I think one of the differences in India is that you don't have the additional feature of the mobile color line. Um, so we get, um, there's a macro effect in our system that only exists as a, you can, you can move the color line on a jati. You can't move the color line on the whole society. Um, and that's a difference uh, here. Uh, where the color line just moved and my race changed. Um, and uh, everybody went along. And what's interesting though is one of the reasons our system is more totalizing is how few people noticed. That pretty much if your race didn't change, you didn't notice. You would tend to think that I had always been white. Uh, and um, so there's, um, so I mean, I. I Neither system can function perfectly, and we do show multi-generational mobility in both systems. Uh, both systems have a discourse of infallibility that they have to have, because the main thing that enforces race in both systems is not the authority. The authority is only there for when the system's in danger of breaking or failing. Then you need your certificate. Um, the 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 real power of the system is seeing you knowing your race and then making a series of correct guesses based on that knowledge and that's the lived experience of the system for everybody on a on a day-to-day -day basis um the endogamy thing is an interesting one because that's um uh that's a thing that uh, changed in my lifetime so when i was born um, I was the product of a crime in about half of the states in the U.S. So, uh, um, and the last of the anti-miscegenation laws was repealed when I was 10. Uh, so, um, I do think that, um, uh, this system used to be hyper-concerned about endogamy and then completely lost interest overnight. Um, there are some major adaptations our racial system made in the 80s to make it more efficient that we're still really struggling to catch up with in terms of our social theory because it was such a clean switch, we couldn't feel it happening to us. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I, I do agree that there are way more checkpoints in the Indian system. There, it's a more it's a fundamentally more robust system. You've got two separate authorities enforcing it, and why shouldn't it be robust? It's been running for longer uh, and more successfully. 
Is there a similar authority for things like class? No. Uh, I mean, no. I mean, the th one of the interesting things about race is that it is enmeshed in the idea of discoverable knowledge. Um, class is, I would say, much more closely enmeshed in ideas of fairness. Um, I think the way you get people to buy into a racial system is to explain all inconsistencies as insufficient information or insufficiently specific information. I think when you buy into a, um, when, when you buy into class, it's much more, um, it's, a, it's a cleaner thing. It's just a self-evident truth. Well, look, these people's labor isn't as valuable. Um, we'll make generalizations about them, but there's a greater sense of security with class. It's like, well, if somebody escapes it, they probably deserve to. Uh, race, you don't have that belief. Um, and so class is, um, I would say in most places you see it, much more reliant on a discourse of fairness. Now, sometimes it has to be a discourse of multi-generational fairness. Sometimes it has to be a discourse of instant karma style fairness. But usually uh, someone's class is something, is simply something they deserve for a reason. Whereas in racial systems, there's an element of obfuscation and mystery. Uh, that this is a mysterious order that we're always striving to fully comprehend. And there were always gaining new tools to discover. Um, you look at, uh, you know, all this money the Mormons are pouring into these uh, genetic tests for ancestry. Um, this is uh, what we're seeing is, a, is we're building a whole new element of the mystery of race when we do that. Yeah. So with, with class, are there similar concerns when somebody attempts to be mobile within class or sort of, so, so we're, there are some good examples there within India. If somebody's attempting to sort of fool the system, there's that birth certificate that will be one of those checkpoints. And when it comes time to marriage, like that's an important piece and that may be, may be a block. And so you're not able to sort of fully escape it in all areas, but with class. Yes. You need the collaboration of the creator of the certificate. That's, uh, right. that's central. That was, but, and that, that's but, an economy, right? There's money to be made there just as there was in the Hispanic world. But for class, like can somebody just be a different class and is there a risk there? And then maybe an additional question there. I understand from what you were explaining with race, sorry. Yes. With race and caste, the purpose being the suppression of wage of wages and having a labor supply. How does, how does, where does class sort of fit into that? And maybe is there a defining feature purpose of class? Well, class is the same thing. Race is a, is a way of amping up the properties of class of rendering a class-based economy, um, more dynamic and more stable. Um, so right. Um, the thing is, the relationship between class and culture is not a clean one, and it varies from place to place and time to time. Um, in, so I'm going to be awful here because uh, I'm, uh, I'm nearing end of class, and so I'm going to give you a non-answer in the form of a parable uh, taken from uh, 
my um, uh, my life. So I'm um, so there's an academic term for the culture of the family I'm from, uh, and that is uh, black respectability, the black respectability project of assiduously learning um, not signs of whiteness but assiduously learning upper middle class cultural practices so that you cause so you couldn't disguise the fact that you were black but you could get closer to status and power and the ability to create a creature like me um, if you kept elevate if you really performatively elevated your the signs of your class so that it would create a sense of contradiction in people how does this person know how to perform my class better than i do um when uh they look like that and that's largely what my my family traded on so um you so we learned all of these things that used to mark the north american haute bourgeoisie so um, one of the reasons that I have appalling table manners is um, my rejection of my family's project. Uh, I want them to see that that project is utterly squandered, uh, that this was, was not a good project to have been in on, no matter how long it took, uh, because I know exactly all of the etiquette it's all was all drilled into me as a child where to put every fork how to pause how to wield these strange instruments how to do a windsor knot how to do a double windsor all of those things i'm very good with an iron right because the thing that you have to do if you're in a respectable black family is you have to do for yourself all the things servants would do in a white family so you know i could also shine shoes like a servant or iron clothes like a servant. And that's part of the paradox of black respectability. Um, and that's because um, there used to be um, a pretty, that, that class used to be much more encoded in culture than it is today. Uh, that, um, uh, that uh, during the period of sort of volatility of the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries, um, you had to store class and culture. I mean, this is one of the reasons Donald Trump hates the New York elite, because he lacks the neurological self-control to perform as a member of his own class. Um, and uh, so he was a figure of fun, a figure of ridicule, because you actually needed a large body of knowledge and bodily control to say, I am part of the New York intelligentsia. I'm part of the New York elite. Um, so I, uh, I grew up in that, in, in a world that was always engaged in an extravagant class performance. And my mother was right at the top of her game. She would sit on boards of organizations like the cancer society because she would be the only person on the board who would know every ritual and procedure for the gala fundraiser, would know everything about how the flower arrangement could connect to the fork, where you situate the napkin based on all, all of that stuff. So um, my mom was a big hero to, um, um, so my mother taught at an elementary school in the southwest corner of Vancouver called Southlands. 
one third of the students came from the Musqueam Indian Reserve and two thirds of the students came from Dunbar and Mackenzie Heights. High, high, high income, totally white neighborhoods. Um, my mother uh, was much beloved by the indigenous parents who were engaged in similar projects to her own. And she, and one of the things that my mother could get done was uh, the queen came to visit. And so my mother, with her reputation in the system and the fact that she'd met the queen before, was able to get her kids to be among those greeting the queen. And the day that her class showed up to greet the queen, you had all these dirt poor kids from Musqueam, even the Point family, the boys all had shined shoes, pressed black slacks, white shirts, ties with Windsor knots, and the jackets. And um, the white children were all wearing designer tracksuits. Because uh, it had moved. That wasn't where class lived anymore. Too many poor people knew how to tie a Windsor knot. And that world, my mother's world, was over. What mattered was the name of the brand on the tracksuit. <laughs> so anyway, there's my, there's my parable about class and culture. I know it doesn't really answer the question, but it gets us some of the way there. I, it, it, it does, and I, I really appreciate the story. It's just making me think a little bit more about the school that I went to, a very old, traditional, all boys, English school, uh, performed well academically and all of these things. But it, I mean, it did, this is what it was for. It was to teach people how to behave and perform in a certain class. And so I'm, I'm, I guess, I know, I know we're toward, uh, sort of at the, at the end of the time for today, but it's something maybe I'll be thinking about and maybe I'll just plant as a question or a thought maybe for next time or a later point is just thinking about why we have these establishments that welcome in all of these people from, uh, okay, there are lots of barriers to even entering the place to begin with, but sort of once you're there, you've got these institutions that are teaching all of these people how to perform this class, which seems counter to the idea that you would not want people to be accessing this class. So that's where I'm left with- Yeah, they debased the currency. That's what happened. But we're always debasing the currency and we're always switching codes. And with race, race and caste. So maybe that's that, that's the sort of difference that I'm sort of curious yeah. about. What's the authority that's keeping that in place? Whereas with class, we are debasing the currency so much, but I don't I don't suspect that we're doing we would the system would do that with race and caste. No, it they wouldn't. Um, no, there is a there is a different dance of fixity and change in race than there is in class that class is supposed to be more dynamic and more volatile. That's why it produces the big labor instability that race is used to mitigate. Um, class is, has more churn and it's supposed to have churn. All of these things need churn or they fail. And we're watching the system teetering on the edge of failure because of its lack of churn. There isn't enough churn in the oligarchy and the system we're looking at globally is shaking because it's lost these churn mechanisms. So class, absolutely, uh, class has higher levels of churn. Um, and uh, it, um, 
I mean, it's, uh, yeah, and I, I think that, um, and I think that's a key feature of it. It's why when, when you get a society complex enough to have class, you see these constant, you see, um, you see the efficiencies. Um, so I, I, I would argue that class is supposed to be less policed. It is supposed to change faster over time. It is supposed to have more elements of um, spitting people out than, um, than caste does, which is designed to, um, uh, you know, which is an elaboration of the system that corrects for some elements of a pure class system. The last thing I would say about um, um, this sort of class and culture dance is um, people it is it is a mistake to think that the that the myth of upward class mobility is a new one. I mean, the fact that Shakespeare's speaking to it in Henry V tells us something important. So, whereas caste systems have a discourse of fixity, even though they're not fixed, class systems do contain a discourse of being able to change your class, irrespective of the uh, fixity of the system, whether that's a lie or the truth. Is it, I, I almost want to ask, what is class? And is it, is it, too, is it too simple to just equate ca caste, sorry, class with economic wealth? Economic wealth is certainly part of it. Or the perception but, of. Um, I mean, I think it has to do with power within a labor system, right? It, it's, not merely, it's not merely what you have within the labor system. It's the power you can exert within and over the system. And, uh, right, what distinguishes the bourgeoisie from the petty bourgeoisie is that the petty bourgeoisie employ themselves and the bourgeoisie employ the proletariat. So that, so there's this, there's this, there's a break point in a class system and that has to do with economic power, which is strongly correlated to wealth, but not completely correlated to wealth.